0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? That good, huh? (laughs) Well, all right. This morning, we are going to take a break from our study uh, through Proverbs. So this summer, we've been going through Proverbs thematically, and we talked about what marriage and parenting and Dealing with your emotions and dealing with words and future plans and the really great one that Nathan did that I keep forgetting, whatever it was about, work. And uh, we've got more to come. We're going to be talking about money and friends and all kinds of things for the rest of the summer. I've been off the last couple of weeks, I don't know if you've noticed, but I haven't been up here. And I've been working ahead on some of that. I've also been planning for the fall. I'm really excited. I think we are going to be going through Romans starting in the fall. So that's exciting to me. I'm looking forward to that. Been on vacation and all kinds of things. Uh, So this morning, before we talk about money, which I think will be next week, I want us to talk about envy. And so I want to start with asking a question Who do you envy? Who in life do you envy? Who are you tempted to envy? Think about it for a minute. Yesterday, uh, Amanda and I went to a wedding. Weddings are places of envy. I don't know if you've noticed this. There's all kinds of temptations to envy at a wedding. The way that we might have been tempted to envy may be a little bit different than uh, a lot of people Uh, We were sitting in the sanctuary of this great big church and imagining how we would remodel and how we would change the carpet and the colors on the walls and get rid of all the fixtures. And Wouldn't it be nice if we had a great big awesome building of our own and didn't have to come and set up and tear down every week? And What if that building was like right on the Lloyd Expressway? That would be cool. Everybody would see and know who we are all kinds of ways that we're tempted. To, I, I love meeting at the Y. I don't, I didn't, it wasn't like it was that big of a deal, right? It's just that thought of not having to have the daily grind or the weekly grind of setup and teardown and all of that stuff, having a place where we can live would be nice. After the wedding, we went to a party. Parties are a great place to be envious. I don't know if you've noticed this, but they are. It was the first time we've probably gone out, just the two of us, in a long time. Uh, At the party, it was a party with a lot of baseball parents. Baseball people in here? Can I see an actual show of hands? I actually need an answer to this question. Okay. So, like, four of you. So, So, how many people, if I say the name Juan Soto, how many people know who that guy is? All right. More people than our baseball people. Because you saw the headline, right? What was the headline? He turned down... Uh, uh, the largest contract in Major League Baseball history yesterday. Turned it down. Anybody w- want to guess who doesn't know? I said who doesn't know. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> $440 million. Four and f- He's 23 years old. He just got voted to his second all-star team. That's it. He's, he's batting. Do you know what his batting average is? I know that like all you non-baseball people don't care and are bored by this. Do you know what his batting average is? Above or below 300? Below. By how much? His batting average is 247. His batting average is 247. That's not great. Four hundred and four. No. There's a reason he got offered $440 million, turned it down. And I was sitting there at the table. So I walk up to a table at this baseball party and I sit down with a former major league baseball catcher who got to play a couple games in the majors, right? And he's, and he coaches now. And he was talking about it and we were talking about it. You think there was a little envy creeping in there for all of us as we talked about that? My goodness, $440 million? Okay. There was some envy in that conversation. There's envy at every party. There's envy at every wedding. You can make a case that the world we live in is built on envy, that it's built on aspiration, that it's built on jealousy. What's social media built on if not envy? If it, if not, if it doesn't track in envy, what is it traffic in? Advertising. Traffics in envy, jealousy, aspiration, desire to have what you don't have, what other people have that you think you should have. So am I really tempted to envy a 23-year-old ball player? Not really. That ship was never built to sail. Like, (laughs) my ship is a little John boat with a hole in it, That, you know, you'd be afraid to put it in six inches of water when it comes to baseball. Okay, but where am I tempted to be envious and where are we tempted to be envious? If you get down to it, I think the temptation to envy hits closest to home at the places where we have made the most sacrifices, actually. The places where we have made the most sacrifices for the sake of pursuing God. As Christians, I think that's really where we're most tempted to envy. Where have you made sacrifices because of your love for God and your faithfulness to God? Where has there been pain? Where have you closed the door that if you didn't have a conscience would have been left open? Those, I think, are the places that we are most tempted to be envious. And that leads to questions of what if? What if I had done things differently? What if I didn't make that sacrifice? Was it that big of a deal? Was it as big of a deal as I made it out to be? Would things really be so bad? Wouldn't they be better? Now, I'm asking you to think about this because we have to think about it. Where are you tempted to be envy? Is it that true of you that the places where you've sacrificed and paid a price are the places you're tempted to just sort of be jealous of other people who... Didn't have to make similar, or did it feel compelled to make similar sacrifices? If you've made any sacrifices in your life for the sake of godliness, for the sake of your church, for the sake of your family, if you've taken a different career path, if you've given something in your life up, if you've made a move, if you've ended a relationship, if you've taken a stand based on your conscience that's cost you, it's easy to look at the people who never did that who don't have a conscience alive to God, and be jealous. See them do well, and be envious, right? So who are you tempted to envy? Kids' school, parents at the party. This morning we're going to study a psalm written by a man uh, named Asaph. And Asaph gets it. We're going to walk through it verse by verse, but we're going to start just by reading the whole thing. Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. They say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Bold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we lift our hearts to you, and we ask that you would humble us and that you would free us from envy and bitterness, from self-pity, and from a lack of trust in your love and kindness and goodness to us. Pray that you would give me wisdom and grace, that you'd fill me with your spirit, that you would guide my words, and that they would hit home, that they would land in our hearts so that we can walk free. Help us, we pray this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the psalm begins with the declaration that God is good, that God is good. And I think that's a tell. It's a tell. It's actually the conclusion. It's actually the whole fight of the psalm. It's actually the whole fight of Asaph's heart to believe that God is good to those who are pure in heart. The whole psalm, we just read it, it's about envying the wicked, right? It's about looking at people out there who have no regard for God and everything seems to go their way. And what is at the root of that struggle? It's the belief or the fear that God's actually not good. That he doesn't care. He doesn't care about those who have struggled to keep their hearts pure and clean. He's not going to deal justly with us. The wicked prosper and are oppressing people. Where is God? It's a struggle to believe that God's good when you look and see those sorts of things. That's the struggle that Asaph has. That's the struggle that he's been working through. And the reality is envy is deeply connected to whether or not we trust that God is good. Whether or not we trust that he loves us and cares for us. Whether or not he wants what's best for us. And there are times and seasons in all of our lives when we're especially tempted to doubt God's goodness. To believe that God takes no notice of our pain. To believe that despite our best efforts to live according to his ways and keep our hearts pure and our hands clean, he doesn't see or care or something. There are times where it seems like our efforts to be faithful to God only bring us pain instead of the joy, blessing, and reward that God seems to promise. That actually all all the reward we get is just being punished for our effort to live pure to God. Have you been in a season, a time in your life like that? Meanwhile, those who have no regard for God or his ways seem to prosper. Everything does seem to be easy for them. They do well. They're having a great time. They're having fun. Things go well for them. And in those times, it's really tempting to envy them. We look at the disparity between what God has given us in this life and what God has given the wicked, and we think, what's the point? It's not fair. I want what they have and in fact I deserve it and in fact I deserve it more than they do This psalm's written by a man who's dealt with that level of envy and doubt and temptation and the truth that God is good prevailed but barely God is good to those who are pure in heart but casting doubt on the goodness of God is a old old tactic of the devil It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It's something we have to always be watching for. The root temptation of the serpent to Eve in the garden was, "Uh, did God really say you shouldn't eat from from any tree in the garden? He's kind of holding out on you, isn't he? What's that about? Why is he holding out? What's he trying to keep from you? Is he really good? Does he really love you? it was a subtle thing. God had given Adam and Eve everything except for one thing. The serpent comes and says, "Ah, did God really like keep everything from you? He focused on the one thing that God had chosen to withhold. And he asked the question and he wants her to doubt and he wants you and me to doubt. Uh, What's God holding back from us? What's he keeping from us? Is he trying to keep us down? Is he trying to keep us from being happy? Is the life he's called us to a life of misery, actually? Does he just kind of take pleasure in our pain? Is he really good? Something that, is being, that I think is good is being withheld from me. I, I feel like I deserve that, or I should have that, or I want that. And I don't. It must be God's fault. Asaph explains his troubles in verses 2 to 3. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He was envious, he was jealous, and he was bitter. He looked around at everyone who had no regard for God and said, hey, they're healthy, they're rich, they're fat. They have wealth, they have power, they can do what they want, they're not in trouble. Even their death looks easy. They have lives of pleasure and ease without suffering. God, aren't you in control? Don't you have a say over this? These people are actually wicked. They actually hate you. They plot the destruction of other people. They oppress the poor and the needy. They're out here tearing down the foundations of the world. They're murdering children. They're subverting the rule of law. Pick someone who occupies that space in your mind. I don't care who it is. If you have to go to Hitler they mock God, they live as though God doesn't see, they say, how does, God not, how, how does God know? Is their knowledge with the most high? That's what they mean. God doesn't see, and they still prosper. They're always at ease. They increase in their riches where they seem to, and it doesn't seem to matter that they oppress the poor and the needy, and it doesn't seem to matter that they openly despise God. It just seems like everything goes their way, and Asaph takes it personally. That's really what you see going on here, right? Like, he takes it really personally. He's tempted to just give his heart over to bitterness. That's not fair. It's not fair. And I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of trying to deal with my sin. I'm tired of trying to deal with my heart. Why? Why am I even bothering Okay, so now how many of you are envious of people who are fat with fat, bulging, fat eyes? Okay, right? But who are you envious of? Did you notice what Asaph said? He said he was envious when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And I think there's a lesson right there for us. Because Asaph knew exactly who he envied. He had particular people in mind. He could describe them to you because he spent a lot of time looking at their prosperity. He spent a lot of time lingering and looking at what they had and what he didn't have. Long enough to want it. We look an awful lot at the prosperity of the wicked. It's hard not to, isn't it? Shoved in our faces all the time. The more you linger on the prosperity of the wicked, the more it seeps into your soul. The more you want what they have, the more tempted you are to imagine what could have been. Why can't I have that? What's in the way? Was that sacrifice really worth it? Was that cost worth paying? And when you start down that path, you go to some dark places and you can get there fast. What's in the way? Parents, your husband, your wife, your church, all the people in your life that have any hope and expectation that you will live an honorable, godly life. So what does that mean? Who's actually in the way? It's God. Between you and all that you deserve is a God who you've convinced yourself doesn't love you because you're focused on the things that other people have that you don't have. So Asaph's tempted to become envious. He's tempted to be bitter. He's tempted to turn from God. And this is how he thought, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. It's, It's all been vanity that I've done this. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He tried to be pure. He tried to please God. He tried to be innocent. He worked hard to keep his heart pure and his body pure. And what did it get him? Suffering and discipline and hardship and mockery, all while he stood on the sidelines and watched the wicked prosper. Wicked people who weren't necessarily smarter than him, weren't necessarily more talented than him, just uninhibited by a little thing called a conscience, willing to do what it takes. Is that you? Or maybe a, the better question is, where is that you? How is that you? At the places God has called us to sacrifice, those are the places we're tempted, tempted to envy people who haven't made the same sacrifices. So where have you made sacrifices? Where have you fought to be faithful, to keep your hand and your heart, or your heart clean and your hands pure? Y'all know the story of Joseph, like from Genesis. It's a big long story, right? I finished reading it a couple days ago or last week, uh, just reading through Genesis, and I, I remember thinking, so you know the story of. Joseph in his coat of many colors, and he gets thrown in the pit, and then his brothers sell him into slavery, and he's a slave in Potiphar's house. And when he's a slave in Potiphar's house, he rises to the top of Potiphar's house, and he gets put in charge of absolutely everything. He, he, he's running the show. He's prospering. And then what happens? Well, Potiphar's wife is kind of interested in this guy who's young and awesome and Basically, runs her husband's house. Right? And she comes to him one day and she propositions him and she grabs his pants, basically. And Joseph, in his commitment to honoring God, just takes off and she keeps his pants. He didn't go back and get his pants. He didn't fight. He didn't try to say, he just ran from and removed himself from the situation. He was just trying to do the right thing. So what happens? Well, she's angry. She's been jolted by this kid. So she's going to throw him under the bus and say that he came and tried to rape her. He's going to get thrown in prison. Can you imagine being Joseph in prison? What did I do to deserve this? All I did was try to do the right thing. All I did was try to honor God. All I did was just try to keep my heart pure, and my body pure, and honor my master's marriage, and what I get is thrown into prison, what's the point? Why did I bother? There are all kinds of things like that in our lives. You can imagine being Joseph in that moment, right? And we don't see, we don't see what God's doing, we don't see God's purpose, we don't see God's plan. Why did Joseph get thrown into prison? Well, just like his brothers meant it for evil when they sold him into slavery and Potiphar's wife meant it for evil when he got thrown into prison, God meant it for good. He got thrown into prison so that he would be positioned to save all of Egypt and his family. We just don't always see how things are, are meant to work out. We don't see what God's doing. If we are in those moments tempted to be bitter and envious, we ruin everything. That frustration, though, is what's bottled up inside of Asaph. And you can imagine many nights in prison where Joseph felt the same way, can't you? We would all feel that way. But Asaph says, If I had, sp- if I s- had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, I would have, if I would have vented my frustrations and let my heart go and run this direction, I would have, I would have betrayed everyone. And I would have been lying. So he kept his mouth shut and that didn't make it any easier for him to understand. And you can imagine it would be hard to understand and it is hard to understand. It would be hard to be Joseph in prison trying to understand and wrap your head around how you got here and how this was somehow a part of God's good plan for you and his love to you. Those things are hard to understand. And it was hard for Asaph to understand until something happened. And that something was he came into the sanctuary of God. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He envied the arrogant until he came into the sanctuary of God and regained perspective. And then he saw how they end. They only prosper for a time because God is good and he is just and he protects the widow and the orphan and he makes the wicked answer for what they've done. Our life here is a short one and this life is all that the wicked get. What they enjoy now is all they ever have to enjoy. They're not to be envied. They're to be pitied. This life is the closest they get to heaven before they reap what they have sown. But for the righteous, for those who fight to keep their hearts pure, this life is the closest we get to hell. It's just a little bit of suffering and pain. And it's not much to complain about. God has set the wicked in slippery places. They prosper, they grow fat, they grow arrogant, but a day of reckoning is coming. And in that day, all things will be set right. They will answer for the people they have harmed and oppressed. They will answer for it. The only way to combat the temptation to envy the wicked is to come into the presence of God and have our hearts and our minds renewed by him so that we can see and judge rightly, so we can have perspective. Asaph came into the presence of God, and he wasn't taken up with the things of the world any longer. He wasn't wrapped up in self-pity anymore. He saw the future, and it was one where God makes all things right, as he does. He didn't debate their happiness any longer. Instead, he saw the judgment that hangs over all of our heads. And that's an important thing too, because notice what Asaph doesn't do. He actually doesn't linger long on the judgment of the wicked. He immediately turns and starts judging himself. When my soul was embittered and I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. In other words, Asaph saw the problem, right? the real problem wasn't them out there. He came into the presence of God. He realized he was his own problem. His heart was his own problem. It wasn't their prosperity. It was his bitterness of soul. That was the problem. It was his envy. It was his self-pity. His foot had almost slipped. You set them in slippery places, my foot had almost slipped. He wanted someone to blame for his suffering, but his problem wasn't those wicked men out there. It was the wickedness in his own heart. The man who envies a fool is a fool. And the man who envies the wicked is wicked. And he put two and two together. Asaph had envied fools who didn't know or fear God, and he was in danger of becoming bitter with God and in danger of becoming exactly who he hated. Envying the arrogant and the wicked is a dangerous thing. It's accusing God of evil. And Asaph teetered at the brink before God brought him to his senses. So how is Asaph kept from stumbling? How can you and I, how can we be kept from stumbling? It was only the hand of God that kept Asaph from turning. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. God holds our hand. That's how. God guides our steps. God keeps us from falling. What keeps us safe is the kindness of God. That's it. Kindness and mercy of God. God holds our hand. If the path God leads us down has trials and suffering and pain and sacrifices, it's because God is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. And the sufferings of this present time are not to be compared to the glory to be revealed to us. God himself guides us and he holds our hands. And occasionally he allows us to walk up to the brink of destruction, just like Asaph. So that we know that we don't really have anything to be jealous of or bitter about. So we can step back and sing with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. God is enough. He's enough for us. More than enough. At the end of the day, you can take it all away, but you can't take us away from him if he has a hold on us. That means we can't lose, and that's part of the point. If you don't have God, you need all that stuff as a crutch to get through life, to prop you up. You take it away, and what's left? Nothing. You take everything away from the Christian, what does he have? Everything. Because he still has Jesus, and Jesus still has him by the hand. We could have everything they could want, and it's never enough. It's never enough. All the things in this life, in this world, Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? We're more than just material beings, which needs to be, we need more than what this world has to offer us. So C.S. Lewis, who said, if I find that there's, I have a desire, a whole a place in my heart that nothing in this world can satisfy, maybe it means I'm made for something more than this world. We have Jesus and he's enough. Is he enough for you? He can be. He promises to be. If you'll come to him and set your sins aside, set aside your pride and your envy and your bitterness and come. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Admitting that we are weak, easily taken in, easily fooled, easily given over to doubt that you are good and that you love us. It's easy for us to look around and be jealous of the wicked. Father, I pray that you would free our hearts to embrace you with all that we are and to turn from our temptation to be jealous and envious and bitter, self-pitying, and realize that you have given us everything in Christ. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.